0: The In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest today is veteran American journalist Barrington Salmon. Hello, Barrington. How are you
1: doing? I am fine. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Okay. Well, I'm good, speaking good. to you and you're in America. So what is the yes. coronavirus situation over
1: there? America is, is the hotspot for the world. It has, it, it has more cases than any other country in the world. Um, I think last I saw, it was almost 80,000 people who have died. Well over a million people have, have tested positive. Up, up until this week... About eighty percent of the country was closed down mandatory um, shutdown of businesses and and most activities, but slowly and surely um, over the past week, about forty the governors of about forty states have either have opened beginning to open back businesses and activities or they they plan to do it in the next week or two so it's it's been it's been Everybody I talk to, no one's. Well, none. None of us have lived through a pandemic. No, nobody. Nobody can recall a situation where everything, sports and entertainment, and going out to a restaurant, going to a theater, all, all of these things have been have been shut down. So it's 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 quite something.
0: In the UK, there have been complaints about how the government here have handled the situation. How do you feel your current president has handled the crisis over in America?
1: Well. He has been getting a great deal of criticism because we, we're getting a bunch of stories from saying that intelligence, U.S. intelligence sources, other folks in American doctors at the World, World Health Organization and other places warned this administration, warned President Trump that the that the virus was coming to the U.S. and it was ignored. He he continued to in January and February he, he said it was a hoax. He said it was Democrats just trying to to um, cast aspersions on his on his presidency, but um, more and more people are are really really criticizing him and holding him responsible. For the fact so many people have been infected, so many people have, di- have died.
0: Well, in the UK, we have the highest death rate in Europe, so there are concerns. Oh, wow. Yes, yes, we do indeed. So questions will be asked, and I'm sure they will say that um, lessons will be learned, which is the standard phrase that politicians use. Let's just hope that things get better over time.
1: But 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 the thing is, is that one of the things that is really aggravating to me is that these people are in positions of authority. They're getting paid to do what they do. They don't do what they're supposed to do. And then they talk about lessons have been learned. People are dying. People are dying because of the things that they're doing and not doing. And somebody should be held accountable. The way the political system is, is set up is that these most of them just, just basically can do what they want, say what they want, and it doesn't make a difference.
0: Well, in my view, the first duty of a government is to protect its citizens. And in my view, um, many governments over the world have failed. So Barrington, let's get on to some lighter
1: subjects. Where did you yeah. grow up? Well, I was born in Dick Whittington Hospital in Islington. Yeah, you, you were uh-huh. you were born in London. <laughs> I'd see,
0: I didn't know that.
1: I, I, yeah, grew up grew up in Tottenham. lived the, lived across the street from um, White Hart Lane, the old White Hart Lane. Oh, so, the football ground. Yes, yes. My parents came to England, went to England in 1950. They were a part of the Windrush generation. They took a, took advantage of the opportunity to to go to England when you know after the World War and you know they told they told folks in the colonies that if they wanted to they could come to England to rebuild the country. So my father was my father was a, worked for British Railway for twenty years. He uh, he desegregated British Railway when when he came they were no, there were no black people doing any jobs of consequence. They gave him a job gave him a promotion and uh what ended up happening was that there was a national strike for a week because the white the white 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 men that he worked with said that they were not that they did, weren't going to work with the walk. and so um after a week he was allowed to they they ended they ended the strike and and he was allowed to keep his position so he was a he was a conductor on the on the train for 20 years no my mom was a seamstress she she sold um because she because she couldn't get a job working for any fashion company, she, they would bring all the clothes to the house and she would sew them in the living room.
0: So how long were you in the UK for then?
1: I was, I was, in, I was in the UK until I was eight years old and then we went to Jamaica.
0: Oh, and how was Jamaica?
1: Jamaica was fabulous because um, for the whole time that, that I was in England, I went to St. Francis de Sales School on Tottenham High Road and um, Catholic school, priests and nuns and teachers and all that stuff. And I recall very vividly this dude who was a geography teacher who told us that you know anybody who lived in in um, tropics, as they called it, wore thatched skirts and lived in, in, thatch, in thatch huts and that type of stuff. And so when I went to Jamaica, I was apprehensive because I thought that we were going to be taking a step backwards in terms of our living standards, but Jamaica for me was an absolute and total revelation because I, I saw with my own eyes, black people who were doing things that white people in England said we couldn't do. We were lawyers and doctors, we were running the country. We were doing all the things that regular people do. And from a cultural and a spiritual standpoint, political standpoint, Jamaica, Jamaica for me has always been the, the blossom and the place that helped me to, to be who I am today.
0: Well, during your travels as a youngster, I assume you went to several schools.
1: Uh, I went to when I came to Jamaica. I went to I went to a school called North Street Congregational uh, Primary School, and then I went to Saint Richard's Primary. Uh, I was there for about a year and a half, two years. Took the common entrance, passed it, and went to Kingston College. You know, anybody who who is an old boy a graduate of Kingston College and you know we always say that the only the only high school of of repute in the whole world is Kingston College because um there's something about the way that we were taught the way that we the people who we met the teachers that we had most of the teachers that that I had were the top top ranks in their respective fields in the Caribbean one two and three in the Caribbean so we had fabulous teachers a very solid critical classical education so um whatever whatever I am is because of because of my experiences when I was here
0: so while you were at school what were your favorite subjects did you have any particular subjects that you really enjoyed
1: history geography English lit English, English hated the sciences hated math and <laughs> did my best did my did my best to avoid them at all costs
0: uh, I think that's true of many youngsters when they're growing up <laughs> I understand you went to college and university. Which ones did you go yes. to and what did you study?
1: When I went to, when I came to Miami, I was 19 when I went to Miami. And because I wasn't familiar with the educational system, I decided to go to junior college. So I went to Miami Dade College, two and a half, three years here, and went to Florida State and Florida Inn in Tallahassee. Got a bachelor's and um, 25 years after I college, I decided to go back to get a master's degree. So... Usually it costs, you know, between fifty and $70,000 US dollars to get a master's degree in this country. But I went online and started looking for a university in the United Kingdom. Came across the Mountford University in Leicester and um, did online distance learning for two years from 2008 to 2010 and got a master's in creative writing and new media in November of 2010.
0: So during your life... Has there been a particular experience do you believe dramatically changed you as a person?
1: I think, I think going to Jamaica was one, because when you, when you grow up in a society that looks down on you as a black person, that tells you that, that you have no history, that you've done nothing of consequence in the history of the world, that you've done nothing of consequence in the United Kingdom, it, it has an effect on you in terms of how you look at yourself and your place in the world. But when I went to Jamaica and you're, you're around black people, you're around people who are super intelligent, super smart. Culturally, it was a time when Rastafarianism was, on, was, on, has, was really just coming into society. And there was a lot of pushback from middle and upper class people because of the way that Rastafarians looked. their hair, and the way they live. They were, uh, they were abused and brutalized by police. But when young people in middle class and upper class families started locks in their hair, people were forced to begin to change the way that they looked at them. I, w- I also was a teenager at a time when Michael Manley came to, came to power in, in Jamaica in 1972. That was uh, a time when that helped me to begin to form my identity as a political person. I've always been... Leaned more socialist than than anything, and so the Watson Manly and the the things he did, the things he said. Um, J- Jamaica was was one of the first countries to come out publicly against apartheid in in South Africa. He was the one that helped Jamaicans embrace and accept Rastafarians. His politics, the democratic socialist politics, where he where he he talked. And, and enacted policies that dealt more with people than institutions and property. So all of these types of things. I mean, I I always laugh because I tell people that I'm a Rastafarian without locks because I, because most <laughs> of what, yeah, because no, because most of what what Rastafarians believe is what I believe, and and it is. I mean, I've always been drawn to the human aspects, the, the aspects that look at you as a person rather than rather than 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 things and and you know the the equity redistribution of 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 resources everybody having a place and a space to express themselves artistically culturally spiritually and otherwise so those are things that have always appealed to me and those are things that that animate me as I as I live my life
0: well you've been a prolific writer for many years how did you obtain your first position as a writer
1: I went to, when I was at Florida State, I did about two, maybe almost three years of courses in international relations. And I, you know, at one point it was like, why the hell am I doing this? You know, I, this is not really what I want to do. I always loved writing. I always loved words. And so I decided that what I was going to do was, was to do something where I could write as much as possible. So I finished school in in 84 and Went to a newspaper called the Florida Flambeau, which is a small left-wing newspaper in Tallahassee. And um, there was a guy there who was an editor. I went to him and said I wanted to write for the paper. I didn't have any clips. I didn't have any stories that I'd written. And usually I found out after I left school that you needed to usually have clips to show people what you could do. So he said to me, go out and and find a story, write it and come back. Let me see how you can write. I had a friend who was... um, He had never seen a hurricane, and one of the first hurricanes in Tallahassee's history ended up coming through the area. He went out to the Cape, almost got washed away. I wrote about it, took it back to the dude, and he said to me, you didn't write this. I don't believe you wrote this. And so I said, okay, I'll sit at this desk, give me something, give me a topic to cover. I'll call people, I'll I'll do the research, and I'll write this. And I did that. Then he was like, well, I guess... You really wrote it. He he offered me a job. Said so he didn't have any money, and so I worked for the first three months. For free. and when he left, his predecessor said to me, "Why are you writing for free?" I said, "Because the, the guy that came before you said that he didn't have any money." And she 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 pooh poohed it and said, "Let's work out a salary that you can that we can both live with." And that's how I started writing. And um, that was in summer of '84. And up until now, I have about 12,000 stories from a bunch of, a bunch of newspaper papers in the United States and the Caribbean.
0: Well, one of my favorite books is by a chap called Nathan mm-hmm. McCall. Makes me want to holler. Yes. Makes me want to holler. I uh, bought that years ago and and he describes mm-hmm. when it's kind of it's more like a, a memoir, I suppose. And he describes the experiences of racism he endured wanting to become a journalist. Um, so I assume then that you had similar experiences yes. from what you just explained to me.
1: Well, the, the, what, what, what always makes me smile is that every time that, that I deal with, with people in the industry, I'll write stories and people are like, where'd you learn to write like that? How'd you learn to write so well? There's always this this, this surprise that a black person can, can write well. For all the years that I've been in, in journalism, you always get these people, these editors, and these people who are running these newspapers offering lip service about the need to diversify newsrooms. But at the mo- you know from the time that I came in in '84 until now, it's still only like a, a handful, five, six, eight percent, if that, of black people in newsrooms. And I think eight percent might be too much. Most most of the newsrooms are dominated by white men, and um, they are they have always been very resistant to allowing some space for women, people who aren't black, to to come in and do what we do. And so you see, you see the you see the result of that when you have like Representative Elijah Cummings, who used to used to represent Baltimore, he died some months ago, and a, a number of newspapers put, put Representative John Lewis Lewis's picture in um in stories talking about Cummings's death. And you have folks who mistake Patty the LaBelle for um, Aretha Franklin. When Aretha died, you had people that put other black women singers and actresses pictures and stuff. So there's a lot of there's a lot of holes and a lot of gaps that result because the, the, the dominant worldview is usually far off base when it comes to acknowledging and accepting black people. Native Americans, mm. Latinos and that type
0: of thing. Well Barrington, you've written for several publications mm. in America, including the Black mm. Press USA, Virgin Islands Daily News, The Washington Times. Kind of mm. articles do you write for the Daily Call?
1: The Final Call. I um I write everything. Most of the stories, you know, I mean, there's so many different different stories that affect Africans in America. So a lot of you know, I've done stories on Black, um, black people in tech and the digital world I've done stories about Trump. I, I do a lot of political stories. The, the impact of Trump and his policies on black people. I, I've done a bunch of stories lately on coronavirus. I mean it, it, whatever 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 is topical, whatever is relevant, to black people, at some point or another, I'm going to end up writing it, and I've been I've been writing for the Final Call since uh, 2015, so I've enjoyed it immensely.
0: So, is the Final Call is that a left wing publication? Do they slant more to the left?
1: I don't I don't know I don't know if you were forced to to say say one. It's it's I would say a little a little left of center, but um you know it's kind of hard to say because they they are more concerned about articulating issues of concern to to black people than 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 a particular political political position. So
0: So besides writing, what other interests do you have Barrington?
1: Love football, crazy about football. I've you know been a Chelsea Chelsea Tottenham fan for years. Played football until I was like 45 <laughs> and then then my body couldn't take it anymore. Uh, love racquetball, love trivia, crossword puzzles. You know, that type of thing. Music, crazy about reggae music, crazy about salsa, crazy about timba. I love salsa. My, my wife is in the Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: Yes, I gathered that. So, Barrington, how yeah. can people contact yeah. you?
1: Barrington Simon Writes. You can, you can Google me. I'm on Facebook as Barrington Salmon. And I have a website, BarringtonSimonWrites.com. So those are the best ways to, to get me. I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at DC.
0: So, Barrington, thank you very much, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.